And join me in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll be jumping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 19. Now hear the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness." And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. You may be seated this morning, and as we come to God's word, let's pray together for God's grace. Our Father, how thankful we are once again to be gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, to be gathered together in the presence of our Most High and Holy God, and to receive from You the great benefit of Your Word. We know that Your Word is living, Father, that it is active. We know that Your Word is is breathed out by You for our profit and for our good and for our benefit. And we know, Father that You are at work, that the Holy Spirit is at work within us to transform our very lives by the renewing of our minds as we come under the authority of Your living and active Word. And so be with us today, Holy Spirit. Would You illuminate the meaning of these words to us, and not only to our minds, but to our hearts. Would You convince us in the deepest recesses of our being that these words are truth, and would You use them as the double-edged sword that they are, Father, to expose sin and unbelief, unfaithfulness that resides in us still, that remains in us still, and to dig it out and to excise it like a surgeon would in continuing to heal us and conform us to the image of Christ. And so, Father, we don't just want to be hearers of Your Word. We want more and more to be doers. Therefore, Lord, may the words of my mouth And may the meditations of our hearts this morning as we come to your holy word, may it all be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, um, from God's word to us in Isaiah, if you remember chapter 50, we learned that God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and trustworthiness, and dependability that none of those things are dependent on anything outside of God, certainly not anything about us. 
what we do, what we don't do, what happens to us, our circumstances, anything that's going on in our lives, none of that, none of that determines whether or not God is faithful, whether or not God is good. God is faithful irrespective of anything about us or anything that is happening to us. God is faithful in His own unchangeable character and nature and in all of the purposes and promises that He has sovereignly ordained since before the world was ever formed, let alone since before we ever came onto the scene. He's faithful simply because of who and what He is. And so we know because of who He is and because of everything that He does that no matter what is happening to us, we can trust Him. We don't always feel that way, but we know it because it's true according to Him. And so in those times of trial where our feelings threaten to yank us off in some other direction towards unbelief, we can call to mind what we know from God's Holy Word. This week, in line with that same reality, I want for us to focus on the words of Jesus here, which Michael just read. These words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, where we learn that not only is God's faithfulness not dependent on us or, or on our circumstances, neither is our peace in this world dependent on our circumstances. Again, we feel like it is a lot of times, don't we? Hard things happen to us and hard things happen in our world and we feel like as long as these hard things are happening and as long as this darkness is all around me, I can't have peace because my peace depends on what's going on and happening to me. But you know what? It doesn't. And that's what Jesus teaches us here. Not only is God's faithfulness not dependent on our circumstances, neither is our peace, neither is our contentment dependent on the circumstances of our lives, but rather it's dependent on our belief, on our confidence in the goodness and faithfulness of our God, which never changes, in His sovereign control, His divine purposes in every single circumstance that He has ordained for our lives. That is the principle message and reality that lies behind Jesus' central exhortation to us in this passage that we're going to look at here together today, which is this. The exhortation is this. Right in verse 25, He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's an imperative. That's a command which, as we're going to see here, is not conditioned on the hard circumstances of our lives. There is, no, there is no statement that goes, unless, of course, right, at the end of Jesus' command to not be anxious about our lives. Now, now, we feel like there must be. We feel like Matthew must have just forgot to write it, write it down, Right? I feel like that all the time. Hard things happen and and I start panicking and I start getting anxious and I start losing my confidence. And I feel like there's no other way to be than this. Than this this anxiousness. And I expect Jesus to say, don't be anxious. Unless, of course, you're going through a really hard time. But He doesn't say that because if we were never going through a hard time, why would we be anxious? He's talking about the hard times. And saying, don't be anxious because your peace doesn't depend on pleasant circumstances. So jumping right in here and looking at verse 25 there, understanding this command of Jesus to not be anxious, understanding that command depends on understanding the first word in the statement there in verse 25, which is the word, therefore. Therefore, don't be anxious. So we need to start by asking ourselves, what what did Jesus say before this, before this command not to be anxious, what did He he say that makes Him frame the command uh, not to be anxious up up with a therefore? And the answer is everything that He taught in verses 19-24. through 
In those verses, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You see what he's saying? If you're busy laying up treasures on earth, you're going to be anxious. But if you're busy laying up your treasures in heaven, in the place that can never be shaken, that's going to go a long way to helping you with your anxiety. Because if you lay yourself treasures up in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or thieves do not break in and steal, then what do you have to fear? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And finally, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So in these verses, verses 19 through 24, Jesus, what he's doing is he's defining an entirely new paradigm of life for us to live by, very, very different than the one that we came into this world living by. He's reorienting our minds and our hearts entirely now that He's made us to be new creations in Christ Jesus. Now that we've been made alive in Christ and awakened with love to Christ and gratitude towards the One who has loved us with this redeeming and everlasting love which has caused us to have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven... There's this new paradigm to live by where that's our hope and nothing in this world, see? Jesus is reorienting our minds away from being fixated and consumed with concern for the things in this world which are passing, which are transient, which are fleeting. Because this is where moth and rust destroy everything, right? Eventually it all fades away and crumbles to dust. None of it lasts forever. And He wants us to fix our hope on the eternal, immeasurably precious things of Himself and of His kingdom because those things endure forever. So this, see, this is what it means. Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. This is what it means. It means to live our lives oriented toward the value of God and His kingdom, His righteousness, and His promises and the inheritance that He's given us in Christ, all of which we behold by faith. You can't see any of that stuff with your eyes right now. But we're supposed to live oriented towards all of that by faith and not oriented towards valuing the things of this world which we behold by sight. The things that we can see, the things that we can touch. Behold with our, with our five natural senses. Jesus wants us to be defined by, and motivated by, and driven by in our lives here. Now, faith and not sight. Faith in Him. Faith in the eternally valuable things of His kingdom, even though we can't see Him. Touch Him. Hold Him right now. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, right? Teaches us that faith is What? It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that are not seen. If you can see it, you don't need faith. Faith is the God-given gift to regenerated, reborn souls who have been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. The gift of assurance that the things that He reveals and promises in His Word are real and true and sure and are more worthy of being trusted in and hoped for and lived for than anything that you can see or smell or hear or touch or taste. And so, all of these things that Christ has promised us, faith assures us, they are so pricelessly valuable And they are so eternally real that God-given faith clings to those things, hopes in those things, lives for those things, even when everything else in this world falls apart, including our physical bodies, including the nations, 
even if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Didn't we say this morning together responsively from Psalm 46? Now, naturally from birth, what we're inclined to do is to put our confidence in the things that we can see and touch and feel. Because we have no faith when we're born into this world. We're born unbelievers. But now we have been given faith and we have been redeemed by God through faith and the assurance that the promises of Christ Jesus are true, that His blood has washed us clean and we've been raised with Him to newness of life. We believe all that by faith and He's saying, now live by that faith in the things that I have promised you which lie ahead and you won't be anxious when all of the things around you fall to pieces. So by faith, Jesus frees us to trust Him, to hope in Him, and to follow Him. That's what verses 19-24 through 24 are all about. Your Master, the, the one you answer to now, is not anything in this world, or not any need that can be met by anything in this world. It's Jesus and all that He has laid up for you in eternity. And having confidence in that frees you to obey Him and serve Him without regard to what it's going to cost you without being nearly so concerned with your earthly needs, like where the money's going to come from, and whether we're going to have enough for retirement, or whether we're going to have food and clothing, because we're walking by faith. And when we're walking by faith, those things aren't unimportant, but they're not the most important. And none of those things matter nearly so much as laying up the heavenly treasures of worshiping our God, and, and, and being fed by His Word, and drawing near to commune with Him in prayer when we have needs, fellowshipping with His people, building one another up, serving each other in ministry, bringing the Gospel and the love of Jesus out to the world and to the lost. When we're doing those things, God says, I'll, I'll give you all this stuff that you need. Just, just seek the kingdom. When we're walking by faith, those are the priceless treasures that we revel in on this earth. The worship, the fellowship, the communion, the word, prayer, the kingdom, the righteousness, the gospel. Those are the manifestations of the unseen glories of the life that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope. And the question is, Do we trust in those things? Do we hope in those things enough to be able to loosen our grasp on the earthly treasures? The money, the the career advancement, the, the job, the savings, the property, the pleasant circumstances, so that those things aren't what we're ultimately anchoring our hope to. Where's your heart? Jesus wants to know. And the answer is, my heart is where my treasures are. My heart is where the bulk of my time and my energy and my focus gets spent. My heart is where the things I hope in tend to be piled up. When Jesus says, well, then there's Antitha, you can't serve two masters. You can't have two owners. You can't be devoted to serving God and His eternal kingdom at the same time that you're devoted to a life of of basing your hope and security on amassing earthly stuff. And so what He's doing is He's calling us. and, And in fact, He's demanding from us a life of undivided devotion to Him and to His kingdom. A heart life and a heart orientation that sees and savors the unsurpassed value of the eternal kingdom and the unseen Christ. So much that the things and the cares of this world take a back seat. Not that they disappear. Not that we commit ourselves to living like monks and saying, well, we're just going to starve ourselves and deprive ourselves and purposefully live in pain and affliction and seek that out as some means to greater holiness. That's not how it works at all. Seek the kingdom and God will give you as a gift whatever material things you need in this world. And then you'll be able to say, well, praise God that He gave me this, if it's a little or if it's a lot. And out of gratitude, your heart will be energized to serve Him even more. This is the paradigm that He's laying out in verses 19-24, through all of which lays behind that word in verse 25, that word, therefore. So because all of this is true, 
Because your greatest treasures are things you can't see. Therefore, because this is your life as a new creation, because this is what you are as one who walks by faith and not by sight, therefore don't be anxious for your life in this world. So what Jesus is saying is that anxiety, and and we're not talking about the feeling of anxiety, we're talking about being anxious, and we'll talk about that distinction here in just a second. But he's talking about being anxious, which is when we don't just feel anxiety, but we start to go, ah, everything's terrible and it's all going to fall, and what am I going to do? And then we get consumed with that negative attitude of discontentment and fearfulness so much that we can't focus on the kingdom and the righteousness, and what we ought to be doing to be honoring and serving our Lord because we're so consumed with us. He's saying being anxious, so abiding in this crippling sort of paralyzing anxiety that comes from walking by sight instead of by faith, and being more concerned with the cares and things of this world than than those of the kingdom. It comes from trusting self more than trusting God. It comes from hoping in what we can do and what we can grasp and what we can hold and what we can control more than we grasp what He promises and what He does. Jesus is saying that kind of anxiety is a form of unbelief that is characteristic of the pagans out there who who have no concept of trusting God. It's a symptom in believers of a distracted and misdirected soul that at that moment is not wholly devoted to Christ and to His kingdom. A soul that's not rested and trusting in the eternal realities and promises of God and His fatherly care and providence for His children. Now Jesus uses the word anxious here in verse 25. And when we talk about anxiety, it's important to make some important distinctions. The word anxiety in the Greek language that Paul or that Jesus was speaking in here simply means to be emotionally upset by some concern. It's a broad word. covers a a range of feelings that we experience when things get tough in our lives. It just means to be distressed or to be worried, to be afraid, to be inwardly troubled in some way. And so first of all, what I want you to just simply remember is that Jesus Himself felt that way in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before His crucifixion. Remember? John chapter 12, verse 27. He said, Now is my soul greatly troubled. So on the one hand, we have Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6 commanding us not to be anxious, not to be troubled about what's going on. On the other hand, He Himself, the sinless Son of God, felt greatly troubled in His soul. Is that a contradiction? Of course, it's not a contradiction in the infallible Word of God. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, was tempted in every single way that we are, but without Sin. There's your key. That's how we square all this up. By understanding that the feeling of anxiety or distress or fear isn't necessarily by itself wrong or sinful or an evidence of a lack of faith. But where that feeling comes from absolutely can be a lack of faith or something sinful about us. And once we have that feeling, what we do with it absolutely can be a lack of faith or the presence of sin. So Jesus felt the temptation. Jesus felt the human emotion, the experience of anxiety. But He felt it without then being anxious. So what that means is that the, the, the anxious, troubling fearful, sorrowful feelings that Jesus felt didn't come from any kind of unbelief in His heart. It came from a realization of what His body was going to experience the next day. And that was scary, terrifying, horrifying. The feelings that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane didn't come from some failure to trust God. 
And when Jesus felt those feelings, his response to them and what he did with them didn't lack faith either. He didn't, he didn't crumble into self-pity and spend the whole night bemoaning his plight. And he didn't run from God's will, which we're going to see the prophet Jonah do in a couple weeks here. Jesus submitted himself to his Father in prayer and embraced God's will, even though it absolutely terrified him. Because while Jesus had feelings, he wasn't governed by them. He was governed by truth and he was governed by the will of his Father. He refused to make his own comfort, his own safety, more important than God's glory and God's purposes. And so his response to greatly troubling circumstances was governed by faith. And that's the lesson for us. Just like David in Psalm 56, for another example, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. It's hard, God. I'm getting crushed here. All day long, attackers oppress me. My enemies are trampling on me all day long. People are attacking me proudly. And when I am afraid, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When he's afraid. Because terrible things are happening. So David doesn't say, when terrible things are happening to me, when people are oppressing me, when people are beating me up and trampling on me, I don't have any fear. I don't have any anxious feeling. David doesn't say that. Things are hard for him. Fear strikes him. His heart feels troubled. He says, but here's what I need to do with it in order to trust God. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When anxious, fearful feelings, they're normal as a part of the reality of living as human beings in this world that's crumbling and groaning and where difficult things happen. Anxious feelings can also have medical causes sometimes, right? Hormones, thyroid levels, brain chemistry, whole host of other factors can cause you to feel anxious feelings that you didn't invite and that you wish would leave. Feeling them isn't necessarily sin. Experiencing those feelings doesn't necessarily indicate unbelief or a lack of trust in God. And in other parts of Scripture, God helps us to learn how to deal with them. With anxious, fearful feelings when we experience them. Peter tells us, for example, that when we feel anxious feelings, when we have deep cares burdening our souls, that we can cast all of those cares on God because we trust and have confidence that He cares for us. We can roll it all over onto Him and trust Him to bear us up when we're troubled. And here in Matthew chapter 6, that's sort of what Jesus is doing, but His focus is a little different, isn't it? Here... Jesus isn't just so much talking about what to do with anxious feelings when they're present in our lives already. What he's actually talking about is how to avoid so many of them in the first place. Again, some of them aren't avoidable, right? Medical causes, physiological body causes, circumstantial causes like really hard trials and hardships that we endure can cause us to feel anxious and fearful and overwhelmed. But anybody in here besides just me ever feel anxious for no good reason? Nothing's actually happening to you, but you're sure it's coming tomorrow, right? Based on my hyper-intuitive powers of prognostication, I know that these present circumstances are leading to a catastrophe tomorrow and I better spend all day worrying about it. Anybody else do that? Just me? (laughs) Jesus is saying there's a way to avoid that kind of anxiety from overwhelming you and from paralyzing you. So, He's talking about a particular cause of anxiety that is avoidable if we will trust Him and follow Him. He's saying that sometimes, and if I'm being honest, it's a lot of times, He's saying that sometimes abiding feelings even of anxiety can be traced back to a a source 
of a failure of our hearts to be resting in faith in the reality that no matter what's going on and no matter what's going to happen tomorrow, God is sovereign and good and faithful. And from a a failure of our hearts in the midst of the anxiety to be prioritizing God's kingdom and the surety of His promises in our lives. So what Jesus is teaching here is that there's a lot of times in our lives where an improper heart orientation, an inordinate focus on the cares of this world, and a tendency to walk by sight and not by faith, which means right anchoring our hope to pleasant circumstances and to our bodily health and to things like money and property and stuff. He's saying if if you've got an inordinate priority and focus on that kind of stuff, that will lead to anxiety because your soul isn't fixed on the true source of true hope and true comfort and true peace. So that's Jesus' illustration of the eye. Up in verse 22, where he says that the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the eye isn't whole, if it's bad, then the whole body is full of darkness. What he means is simply that a lamp or a lantern is something that, that keeps us on track. It keeps us on the path. Like a, like a lantern that we'd use if we were hiking in the woods trying to get back to the safety of, of our camp. It keeps, it keeps us heading towards the goal. It keeps us from getting off track and stumbling around in the dark and falling off cliffs and things. And so if the lamp goes bad then we can't find the path and we can't get home in the dark because we're wandering around in peril, not knowing our next step and whether or not that step's going to be a step in the right direction or, or a step that, that leads us off a cliff. That's nerve-wracking, right? You ever, you ever hiked at night? You ever, you ever gone out for such a long hike in the mountains and didn't bring a flashlight that then the sun starts going down and you didn't account for the time it's going to take to get back to camp? It's scary when you can't see where your feet are going. That would make us feel anxious, right? To be stumbling around in the woods in the pitch dark without a lamp. But if you were doing that, stumbling around in the dark because you were too foolish to think ahead to bring a flashlight. And then suddenly, in all of your anxiety, what am I going to do? Where am I going? I have no idea if I'm going to fall or not. I'm anxious. Then, if a park ranger, who knew the forest like the back of his hand, if he came by and promised to walk with us, tell you what, I'll I'll link my arm in your arm and I'll walk with you. And in fact, I have two flashlights, he says. Would you feel better? Would that go a long way to quelling the anxiety? Of course it would. And Jesus is saying, this is how it is with your life. If you're not walking by faith, if your hope's not fixed on the unseen and the eternal, if you're trying to find hope and safety on your own, which by the way is what Isaiah meant at the end of chapter 50 when he said, lighting your own torches instead of walking by the light of God's Word. If you're trying to do it on its own, then what you're really doing is stumbling around in the dark on your own and you can expect to feel afraid and overwhelmed and anxious. And so Jesus comes alongside us here and actually says, I'm always alongside you. I never leave you. I never forsake you. And in this this passage gives us a whole slew of reasons not to be anxious. He turns the lamp on for us, the light of His Word... And he breaks out the map and he shows us the path. He tells us what's real. He tells us what's true. And he says, walk like this and you won't feel so afraid in your life. So that, see, we can embrace the realities that he reveals by faith instead of being crippled by the kind of anxiety that comes from unbelief and from keeping blinders over our eyes and saying, no, I don't want to look the way you're telling me to look, Jesus. I want to live in my fear. Just so look at all the comforting light that Jesus sheds for our path of walking by faith here in these verses. Don't be anxious, Jesus says, because because of the reality, according to Jesus, who's the author of life, right? He, he kind of created the whole thing in the first place. Don't be anxious because the reality is that what life is, is more than food. 
and the body is more than clothing, right? Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, nor your body, what you're going to put on, because is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now you know as well as I do that in this world, in these bodies, without food we'll die, right? So is Jesus saying, don't worry about eating because I'll just, I'll just make sure you live forever without eating? No. <laughs> without food, we'll die. Without proper clothing, the body can't survive out there in the cold on its own. But Jesus says life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And the word that He uses for life there is the Greek word suke, which means soul, which means your life is more than your body. And we need to stop living like our lives are mostly about our bodies. Literally, Jesus is saying, your body and your soul, your life, it's all together about way more than the biological life that is sustained by food and covered with clothes. You see what He means? He means, listen, even if your body does freeze because it has no clothes, and even if your body does starve to death because it has no food, don't think that your hope is gone just because your body's gone. Why? You know why. Because to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord which normally we only like to talk about at funerals, but Jesus is saying you need to live like this all the time. God's Word is clear. Your real life doesn't depend on your physical body. It doesn't mean your body doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's not the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of it. It just means that in this world, it's not made to last forever, and then it will be raised, and then it will last forever. God's Word is also clear that when your real body dies, when the tent is torn down, to use Paul's metaphor from 2 Corinthians 5, then there is coming a day when that same body will be raised. When when mortal will put on immortality. When the perishable will become imperishability. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed, right? 1 Corinthians 15, that's truth, right? That's reality as God has designed it and defined it and and as He purposes to accomplish it according to the light of His Word. Question is, do we believe it? Do we trust it? Do we live according to the reality that God has created and revealed? Or are we living like unbelievers? And not just taking care of our bodies and being wise stewards of what God has, has given us here but, but clinging to it like it's the only thing in the world that matters and like all of our hope depends on making sure that it never ages and never wrinkles and never gets sick and, and never passes away. That's how unbelievers live. How do we live? Are we confident in faith that even if persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, Paul, end of Romans 8, That even if all of that is our lot in life, are we confident that even if all of that causes the destruction of our mortal physical bodies, that our death, that our soul's separation from our body will mean being present with the Lord? Are we confident in that? And that one day He's going to raise our bodies in immortality. And that we will dwell with Him forever because death will have been swallowed up by life. Do we believe that? And do our lives show that we believe that? That's what we're destined for in Christ. We're we're destined for immortality. And so to die in this world is gain. And didn't Jesus say in John or Luke chapter 12, "I, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. Don't you love that statement? That's all they can do. The worst they can do is to destroy your physical body, kill you. After that, there's nothing they can do. What does he mean? What he means is, there's something far worse than physical death. But in Christ, no one can ever do that to you. No one, if you're in Christ, can ever consign you to eternal condemnation, body and soul, in the fires of hell. No one, if you're in Christ... So don't fear persecution. Don't fear famine. 
Don't fear nakedness. Don't fear the sword. Because in Christ, what does Paul say there at the end of Romans 8? You overwhelmingly conquer. That doesn't mean Christ's going to keep the sword from hitting you or the famine from destroying you. It means that even if it does, you overwhelmingly conquer because eternally, eternally you will live with Him. So here then, now next, Jesus says in verse 26 that we can avoid anxiety so many times in our lives by believing not only that all of that's true, but also by believing that we matter to God while we live in this world where all kinds of horrible things can and do happen to people. In the midst of all of that, we don't have to fear it because we can believe that God is sovereign over it and that He cares about us more than He cares for the birds that hop around on the ground and fly around in the air, right? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, right? They're not spending their whole lives going, oh, how are we going to have enough food to eat and stuffing it into barns and bigger barns and barns upon barns like we do. And yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value to Him than, than you? Or are you not of more value to Him than, than they are? So first of all, they're the birds of the air. And if you look down in verse 28, he even, he even extends this kind of talk to the flowers and the grass that grow on the ground. And he says, don't think that God's sovereignty doesn't extend to those things. All of them are held up by Jesus. And they're held up by Him as examples for us to follow. And the point of the example is that the birds and the grass... In the way that God designed them, they don't even worry about where their food's going to come from. They don't build barns and silos. They're not stressing. They're not anxious. The flowers out aren't, aren't out there in the field going, we better toil and labor and, and worry about what we're going to wear. Because in their simplicity, in their inability to do what we do with our intellect and our reasoning, in their inability to worry, they're simply utterly and completely dependent on God. Wouldn't that be nice? Jesus is saying, be like that. He's not saying, be irresponsible. He's not saying, don't attend to the cares of this life. Don't be wise stewards at all. He's just saying, trust God more than you trust your own efforts to produce for yourself what you're going to eat tomorrow, drink tomorrow, and wear tomorrow. Trust these two truths, he's saying. First, that God is absolutely and sovereignly in control of every aspect of His universe down to every blade of grass. And second, trust that this sovereign God loves you, cares about you. Trust it. And you have to put them together. So many people say, well, if I'm going to trust that God cares about me, then I can't trust that He's sovereign because bad things keep happening to me. Uh, You're shutting your eyes to the light that God has revealed in His Word. Other people say, I believe that God is absolutely sovereign, but because bad things are happening to me, I don't trust that He cares for me. You're shutting your eyes to the truth that He reveals in His Word. They go together. Trust these true truths together. And it will go a long way to quelling a lot of the anxiety that you and I experience a lot of times in our lives. God is in control. God is so sovereignly involved in His universe that He feeds the birds. Every berry that every bird finds to eat, right? Every worm, every insect that a bird catches in its beak is provided by God, Jesus says. And if He does that for birds, won't He do it for you? Doesn't He care more for you? than any of those birds? And again, is that a guarantee that you'll never go hungry? Is that a guarantee that no Christian will ever starve? No, it's not. It's just a guarantee that, that in fullness or in famine, God cares. God knows. God's able. And you can trust Him no matter what. You don't have to be anxious because life is more than food and clothes. Because God is sovereign. He's in control. And you're not. And all of the anxious, I, I, I need to grasp the reins here because God doesn't seem to be getting it done. Does that ever help? 
You're not in control. I'm not in control. He cares about you more than He cares about any other part of His created order. Do you believe that? So verse 27, being anxious gets you precisely nowhere, right? Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Man, I, these are verses and this is a passage that this bookmark stays in a lot in my Bible. Because somehow I'm dumb enough to think that I can spend a good hour or two or three being anxious and that that's going to accomplish something good and maybe extend my life. I mean, it's useless for me to be anxious about my life. It accomplishes nothing. gets me nowhere. It doesn't help one single bit. It only makes everything worse. Right? Because when we're being anxious about how we're going to lay up treasures on this earth and where we're going to have enough treasures on this earth to get us through, then how in the world am I ever going to have the focus to maintain hope and security for eternity. See, the anxiety that we, in our unbelief, allow to fester in our souls hinders any effectiveness that we have for the kingdom. It's like, it's like trying to run a marathon being chained to a rock. A big rock. The weight of this kind of anxiety is crippling. And when you're crippled, you can't do much. You just actually end up feeling more anxious. You get into this emotional kind of tailspin. Trust me, been there, done that. And in those times, we've got to tell ourselves truth. This is, this is when God's Word is precious. This is when you stumble around in the dark and the, and, the, and the lights come on so that we so that we don't get crippled and paralyzed by useless anxiety that comes from failing to trust the truth that God reveals and walk by faith and not by sight. So truth is that the things that are hard in this life are hard for an instant, just an instant, in in light of the scope of eternity. Isn't that what Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians 4? And I think Paul went through a lot worse things than I'm going through or I've ever been through, or I'm likely to ever go through. And he says it's a momentary light affliction. That's the same thing that Jesus is saying here in verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you see the, the contrast he's making between, between us and the, and the grass that grows on the ground? It's not just that God cares about us more than the grass. That's true. He's already said that. He cares for the grass. He cares for the lilies. So, so how much more does he care for you, image bearer? You can bank on that. You can trust that. Even though the grass gets cut down and then used as fuel for the fire, God still cares about it while it grows. So how much more can you have confidence that He cares about you? But see, the main point that Jesus is making in verse 28 and and on through verse 30 is this, that, that God cares for the grass even though its existence is so fleeting and brief. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. The lilies that God adorns with such splendor and beauty, the grass that God clothes in the field, it's here for one day and then tomorrow you can go out there and the the wind has blown it away. But your life is eternal. How much more does God care? If He's so intimately concerned with flowers which wither and fade overnight, if He's so carefully involved with grass which is literally like vapor, can't we trust that He'll care for us? Whose lives whose souls and whose bodies one day will be eternal. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus says to us. So, this this kind of anxiety that Jesus is confronting is a trust issue. If we could, by His grace, 
vanquish all of the anxiety from our hearts that, that stems up from a failure to trust that in His sovereign goodness He cares for us and provides us that He's got us. If we could get rid of that species of anxiety that grows up out of that kind of unbelief in our hearts, how much would be left that could only be traced to hormones or medical causes? I'm willing to say, not much. For my life, probably for most people, this kind of anxiety that comes from not being rested in the truth is the preponderance of anxiety in the human soul. This kind of anxiety that grows up out of this lack of trust that our lives are way more about the eternal things than they are about food and clothes, and that God is sovereign in this world, and that He wields His sovereignty and cares for us and provides for us, and that we're more valuable to Him, that we matter way more to Him than any other part of creation, and because our lives are eternal in Him, this kind of anxiety that comes from not trusting all of that truth and all of that reality, Jesus says it's worldly. In verse 31, Therefore, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Because the Gentiles, that's how they live. They seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. That's just, that's the logic of it. It's, it's worldly to be crippled by anxiety because we're so focused on the cares of the world. That's pretty simple, Right? Jesus just hits us right between the eyes with it. If there is, Steve, I'm going to talk to myself, because this is, this is a besetting sin in my heart many days. If there is an abiding anxiety in your life that's coming from being worried about the cares and the things of this world, whether it's money or jobs or retirement or clothes or food or what you're seeing going on on the news... If you're anxious, if you're upset, if you're frustrated, if you're angry a lot because of politics, or if you're anxious a lot because of the cares of the world, Jesus is saying, you're just doing what the world does. This is what people do who who don't know God. This is what people do who walk by sight and not by faith. And Jesus is saying, hey, remember who you are. And walk by faith and not by sight. Live as someone who knows and trusts and depends on the God in whom we live and breathe and have our very being. Otherwise, we're just living like the people who don't even know Him. Verse 32, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Do you have confidence in that? Does that change your anxiety level? It's not as if He's unaware And so you have to be worried about where it's all going to come from because apparently God's fallen asleep on me here and I have to therefore lose sleep worrying because otherwise I'm not going to have what I need. I mean, we're talking about God here. Do we think He doesn't know what we need? Do we think He doesn't know the budget? Do we think He doesn't know? I mean, we came home. (laughs) We were gone for three weeks, three and a half weeks. And we came home and the sign at the Chevron station said something way different when we came home than it did when when we left. What is happening with the gas? Do you think God doesn't know how much a tank of gas costs or how much it's going to cost tomorrow or how much groceries are going to be this week or what the mortgage payment is or what the bills add up to or what the church budget is and what the giving was this week and whether we should be afraid about all that or whether we should just trust Him? He knows. He's never at a loss to know what's good for us and what we need, or to know that oftentimes what we need is not to have everything we want. And He has all this wisdom that it takes to be able to meet our needs in exactly the right way, both supplying what we actually need and also keeping us on our knees before Him. He knows what we need so much better than we know what we need. And so sometimes if He doesn't give me what I think I need, It's because there's, not just sometimes, every time He doesn't give me what I think I need, it's because there's something I need more, right? Like learning to trust Him. Like 
like learning to pray more and more instinctively and more as my first recourse, Jason was reminding us of this, at the Wednesday night prayer group. So many times, isn't prayer our last resort? Instead of the first thing we do as soon as there's a sign of trouble. God loves to teach us how to depend on Him. God loves to teach us to to learn to remember that life is about more than food or clothes or money or jobs. Are we rested in that fact? So verse 33, because all of that is real, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of these other things that you're so worried about, those will be added to you and you are passive in that statement. You actively seek the kingdom. Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the clothes. God's going to give you what you need. Life is about more than food and clothes and money and jobs. And you're more valuable to God than birds and flowers and grass. Besides which, this kind of anxiety is useless and worldly. It comes from not trusting God and it cripples faithfulness to Him. So rest in all this truth and we will know freedom, Jesus is saying. From worldly, unbelieving anxiety, from, from the, the feeling of futility, like, like, oh, everything's hopeless all around me because I don't have the things in this world that I need. Do you have in eternity what you need? You'll be free from that. And free to live the life that you were designed and created for. And the life that you were redeemed and recreated for. Which is this life of seeking first the kingdom and the righteousness of God above all things. Free from being distracted, free from being anxious, free from being paralyzed and tied down to the cares of the world because we know that the Heavenly Father who we serve with undivided devotion cares for us and will be the one to give us exactly what we need. So Jesus isn't just saying if there's a bunch of stuff that you're super anxious about in your life, like getting a job and having enough money and putting away for retirement and all of that, then devote yourself to a life of righteous living and kingdom service and God will go out and get you all of the things that you wanted. That's not what this... This isn't the way to get all your hopes and dreams is to do this in exchange for which... God will grant your every wish like some kind of a divine genie. Now, that's not how it works. This all goes together, see? Walking by faith and resting in confident trust in all of these truths, truths about eternity and the value of our lives to God and His sovereign fatherly care and, and all of these things, that causes us to care more about Him and His glory and His kingdom and His people and the lost in this world than we care about the money and the stuff. And even our own physical bodies and our health and well-being. And then it comes back down, where are your treasures, Right? What matters to my heart most? And then we start to realize that glorifying God with righteous living and exalting God by pouring out ourselves in service for His kingdom, that is our life. Those are the treasures. That's what we exist for. It's not what we do with our spare time. It's not extracurricular. And it's not the means unto the end of getting good stuff in this world. It's life itself. It's the defining priority. It's why we exist in this world. It's who we are in Christ. My life is no longer my own. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me in the life I live in this fleshly body. I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I've got about six more pages here and I'm just going to stop. Can you just say amen? And let's sing and pray to our God. Our Father, we love You and we thank You for Your Word. And we know that it's given to penetrate into our lives, our souls, like that double-edged sword and expose the sin, the unbelief that remains in there and to cut it out of us and to transform us. And so, Father, we pray that You will continue to use 
these words of Your truth to reorient us and to focus us on Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith and to fix our gaze on Him and on the things that are eternal, on the things that are unseen, and to be freed from having to care so much about the things that are seen. And so, Father, would You reorient us? Would You redirect us? Would You refine us as You continue Your work within us? And may we all be able to say, as a result of the power of Your Holy Spirit in us, and Christ in us, and Your Word in us, that whatever our lot, it is well with our souls. We love You and we give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.